Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me as always is Gabe Gums. Uh, we have two very special guests on today. Uh, the first is Bob Ekman. He is the CISO of Kent State. Bob, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to just kind of give your background uh, real quick, and then we'll get to the second guest. Sure. Uh, just tell the listeners who you are and how you got to where you are. Yeah, I've been in security for probably a better part of, gosh, over a decade now at least. I uh, started out uh, cutting my teeth in nuclear power. So I was the, uh, helped to establish the cybersecurity program for nuclear power generation in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, that's really a quick way to get dropped in the deep end of security. From there, I've done a tremendous amount of consulting, worked with uh, Fortune 100 companies all over Cleveland, Northeast Ohio, helping them to implement security programs as a, uh, you know, rent a bob, if you will, CISO for hire. <laughs> And uh, the opportunity at Kent State presented itself over a year ago, and uh, I've been uh, gratefully and honored to be there CISO since. And I'm also a faculty member there as well. I teach in the digital science school and teach cybersecurity, a digital system security course as well. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. And our second guest is Gabriella Zanfortuna. Fortuna. Did I say that right? You can Gabriella Zanfortuna, but I'll take it. <laughs> All right. That works. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. She is the Senior Counsel, Future Privacy Forum. Um, can you just give us your backstory, who you are, and how you got to where you are? Um, for sure. Hello, everyone. And uh, thank you, Cameron, for uh, having me as a guest today on your podcast. Uh, well, I am a specialist in European Union data protection law and privacy law. Uh, I have about 10 years of experience in the field. Um, I started as a researcher uh, in Romania at the University of Craiova, uh, where I completed an LLM uh, in human rights with a focus on data protection. And then I completed my PhD in law with a focus on the rights of the data subject, as we call them in Europe, uh, meaning the individuals whose personal data um, are being processed. And uh, after that, I uh, moved to Brussels. I started to work for the European Data Protection Supervisor, uh, which is the EU Data Protection Authority for all of the EU institutions and bodies, um, but also the official advisor of the European Union when it legislates. And this is how I got to be in Brussels in the most exciting of times. And that was the time when uh, the GDPR was being negotiated. Mm -hmm. And I got to be involved uh, in, in the um, GDPR legislative file uh, from um, as part of the team that advised the legislator um, from the EDPS. And in 2016, after all of that um, finally came to an end and the GDPR was adopted, I moved to the United States. And uh, here I am now. Uh, I've been working for the Future of Privacy Forum uh, for close to four years now, mm -hmm. and I've always um, kept you know close to what's been happening in the EU, and I've been trying to uh, bring uh, understanding about the GDPR and the EU data protection law here in the US. Awesome. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, for everyone out there, what is GDPR? What does it mean? Can you give us a, just a simple background? Yes, the GDPR stands for the General Data Protection Regulation, and it's a legislative act of the European Union, which directly applies in all of the member states of the European Union. Um, prior to the GDPR, we had another law of the EU uh, that was the previous Data Protection Directive, Directive 95.46, uh, which had many of the uh, concepts with which the GDPR operates and many of the uh, legal institutions, many um, of the rules. You had the rights of the data subject as well uh, in, in the directive. Uh, you had rules for international data transfers. You had very broad scope of application as well. Um, only that, you know, the directive was adopted in 1995 mm -hmm. and uh, there was clearly a need to update that type of legislation for the internet age and for the big data age, for the algorithm age. And this is what happened um, with the GDPR, which technically revamped the formal directive, um, which in its turn actually is also a result of another legislative process that started in the 70s at member state level 
when uh, the different uh, European states that were part of the EU at that time felt that um, as computers start you know, being able to, to store a lot of data and as public administrations start to keep electronic files about people, hmm, maybe there should be some rules in place to make sure that um, however this data is being collected, stored, processed is fair towards the individuals. And um, individuals have some sort of rights to know who keeps data about them, for what purposes. Uh, They have some sort of rights to um, ask for correction of their data if uh, their public administration somehow messed things up uh, or to even ask for erasure. So we have the right of erasure in the first data protection laws in Europe from uh, the um, late 70s and 80s maybe not the very, very first one in 1970 uh, in Germany, but then it appeared uh, in the subsequent ones. So my point is that the GDPR is uh, a huge step in a long evolution of laws uh, that started in Europe in the 70s and that focus on collecting and using of data about individuals. Uh, in automated ways. Excellent. So, Doctor, you are senior counsel over at the Future of Privacy Forum. So if you would, for our guests that are unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about uh, the Future of Privacy Forum and also this report that you you penned, the General Data Protection Regulation and Analysis and Guidance for U.S. Higher Education Institutions. Sure. So the Future of Privacy Forum is a think tank that um, that promotes data optimism uh, and responsible data uses in the sense that um, uh, the FPF and we at the FPF believe that um, personal data can be processed in responsible ways. Uh, so we have stakeholders from uh, regulators, from uh, industry and all sorts of branches of the industry from the big tech to automakers Uh, to startups, uh, sharing economy. Um, We also have stakeholders uh, from uh, the education uh, sphere. We have a very, very uh, prominent student privacy work stream that's led by my colleague, uh, Amelia Vance. And I'm sure uh, many of your uh, stakeholders and of your peers are familiar with her work uh, and her team's work. Um, And... Among all of our work streams, uh, we also have uh, um, a focus on European privacy law and global law, global trends. Uh, Now, when the GDPR was um, adopted and um, it had this very strong extraterritorial effect, um, that was sort of my um, best way to fit with this team uh, because I um, tried to explain how the GDPR becomes and is applicable to uh, entities here in the United States. And um, within this context, my colleagues that are working for the um, education work stream wanted to dive deeper into the idea of the GDPR being applicable to education institutions here in the US. So we started to look into the conditions that higher ed, particularly higher ed uh, institutions, because they are the ones that interact most, right, with uh, people in Europe, uh, are affected by the GDPR. And this is how we came up with the idea of uh, writing a report Um, or a guide, if you want, uh, to try and help them understand when the GDPR applies to them, when it does not apply to them, uh, and if by any chance the GDPR applies, uh, we also wanted to to help with information on uh, the latest guidance from uh, European Data Protection Authorities uh, on how their compliance should look like. Uh, if they if they want to set up uh, you know, rules and um, a framework to protect the data that's coming in from Europe. Right. It's excellent. And as 
some of you may know, we, we have uh, we have a healthy number of listeners that are in the higher education space, which is why uh, we actually have Bob on the line as well. So, Bob, I, I want to turn the floor over to you to, to for others that are in your roles and 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 in within institutions such as yours. Uh, maybe you can lead, help us lead the conversation and and uh, kind of tease out some of that that guidance and best practices. But if you could first, Bob, just kind of first lay out the the depth of the challenge that you face? How large is Kent State? How is it organized and structured? I, I imagine similar to other institutions. Uh, so we have roughly 25,000 active students, uh, maybe 4,000 or so employees. Uh, but overall, we have about 400,000 active identities that we have to protect on a daily basis. So we are multi-regional. We have uh, many regional campuses here in Northeast Ohio and elsewhere. And we're also international. We have, uh, whether well, not necessarily campuses, but offices and relationships with schools overseas. As well, so obviously the GDPR program in total is of grave interest, not just to myself, but to many schools who are not just doing business in the European Union uh, economic zone, but who are recruiting students from that area as well. Excellent. And so, as GDPR goes, as it's applied to to higher education institutions here stateside, um, what were some of the initial challenges that you had in just understanding and interpreting how it might be applicable? Yeah, so the applicability of it, you know, uh, when you read the GDPR uh, law, because it is a law uh, in the European Union, um, it really is, it's like your typical regulation or law, Uh, not always very clear in how they're defined. Um, The uh, language at times gets a little amorphous, and you're not quite sure how to interpret it. Um, And so what we've done is we've really put in place a program that we feel is appropriate for Kent State, uh, following guidance with what many schools in the states are doing, just you know, applying those controls where we need to apply them. But I'll tell you that I think what it's done overall, and I I don't want to speak for Kent State necessarily, I want to speak for higher education, if you will. Um, What it's done is it's made all schools kind of take a step back and look at their privacy program in total. And we're starting to see some new trends relative to privacy that we haven't seen previously, one of which is a standing up of something called a privacy office, which prior to just a couple of years ago, I had never heard of a privacy office before. But it's a dedicated, you know, sometimes website, sometimes Organizations have a chief privacy officer role um, that, you know, with an office and actual people. But either way, the idea being is that's your one-stop shop for privacy. That's the place you go to communicate how we're doing privacy, how we're approaching privacy, how we treat your data. And I really like that approach from a from a uh, just a confidentiality perspective and making people feel comfortable interacting with the environment. So, so I'm curious, since you were kind of touching on privacy, and this could be a question for both Gabriella and Bob, when you hear the term data privacy, what does that mean to you personally? And what does it mean to your organization? Gabriela, doctor, you want to start? Uh, I, I can start. Uh, when, I, when I hear the term data privacy, I'm, 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 I have a conflict in my, in my head <laughs> because uh, in Europe, you know, we don't operate with this term. We actually have two terms that we operate with uh, because in, in the European Union legal framework, we protect two different rights. And one of them is the right to privacy or the right to respect for private life and family life and confidentiality of communications. Mm-hmm. That's in a bubble. And then we have the right to data protection. So the right to the protection of personal data. And that's in another bubble. Now, the uh, trouble is that sometimes these two bubbles interact. um, And when uh, we talk about data protection um, in Europe, we talk about protection of personal data. So as long as that data, you know, it's personal it will obviously interact many times with uh, the idea of private life and privacy. However, data protection, as as, uh, I understand it um, from uh, the European point of view, um, refers actually to the fact that um, personal data can be used, they even should be used, Um, you know, you can collect them and Um, analyze them and use them. However, the way you're doing this needs to respect some rules of the road. You know, need to, uh, if you want to start collecting personal data and using them, you need to have a justification for why you do that. Uh, You need to set up some basic principles. You need to think particularly why you want to collect and use personal data. So you have some 
purpose, some specific purpose in mind, you um, are um, uh, you know you cannot just collect uh, data because at one point in the future you might find some use for them. So. This is why I'm telling you that when I hear data privacy, I am conflicted because where I come from, uh, we used to distinguish between these two concepts while at the same time recognizes that uh, they relate to each other and that um, you know, it's, it's a bit uh, sort of difficult to communicate particularly to the larger public why um, these two uh, rights are different and these two values um, are conceptualized in a different way in the European Union. Um, so this is this is what I think about when you ask me about data privacy. Um, when I think of privacy, privacy, I, I it's obviously a value that I care a lot about. Um, I think of privacy as a fundamental human right, uh, and um, I hope this will be an approach that uh, will be uh, acknowledged and put in practice in as many jurisdictions as possible. Awesome. Bob? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting perspective because, so I'm, I'm on the other side of the house in some ways, responsible for implementing the controls that keep data uh, private, if you will. And certainly, doctor, I understand the, the trepidation with that word data and privacy together. It's almost like when you say data, privacy should just come along for the ride. We shouldn't have to qualify it by saying data should remain private, right? At the same time, though, I would say that uh, without protection, I really can't have privacy. Um, even though, you know, in my space, we have to implement controls that ensure the confidentiality and the integrity of that data, as well as the availability of that data. And to do that, uh, we need to appropriately assign access controls and authorizations and various things that do that. If we were to follow regulation purely, if we were to look at our various privacy-related programs, such as HIPAA, GLBA, uh, PCI, GDPR, and we were to follow those to the letter, you know, I can implement a control that would meet a requirement in almost every one of those different compliance measures. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I have a good security program. That also doesn't mean that my data is secure, right? So when we talk about data privacy, to me, what that means is we've implemented not just the baseline level of security, but we've developed a defense in depth model that's really more risk-based and context-based, where we understand the risk that that data has to our organization, has to the individual, right? And what it means to them and to us. And as a result of that, we've implemented the appropriate level of security to meet that requirement. And when we begin to do that, what we find is that compliance measures are just kind of the run of the mill, that's your baseline approach to security. And that building on top of that are really the protections that provide that additional you know, protection from the bad guys. I mean, let's be honest. Um, uh, baseline security has been proven time and time again not to be enough. <clears throat> We've seen a number of organizations have implemented millions of dollars worth of security improvements and they still fail. Why is that? Well, that's because they don't have control of their data. They don't know where it is. They don't know how it got there. Um, data is being moved out of a zero trust environment to an endpoint somewhere and then that adversary attacks the endpoint. So in my mind, when I say the words data privacy, although I agree with the doctor that Quite frankly, data privacy in and of itself should mean security, it should mean compliance, it should mean protection, defense in depth. In my mind, it should encompass all those things. And when we when we interact with our data, uh, we need to understand where that data resides, why it resides there, and who has access to it. In my business, it's 100% about authorized versus unauthorized access. Um, I can provide any level of protection I want to, but if I allow for an unauthorized person to gain access to that data, I'll be in violation of the GDPR rule and others as well here at the state side that quite frankly um, could have been avoided had I just done a simple risk assessment, looked at the content-based approach to that data and understood who was moving it, where it was going and how it got there. So in my mind, I, I, I don't wanna say they're synonymous because um, they're not, I certainly understand the distinction, but privacy to me uh, and protection really can't exist without the other. They really need both. Without privacy, I don't have protection. And really, without protection, I won't have privacy. That's really good. Thank you for, for going into that. So, Gabriella, and this obviously relates to you, Bob. So, in the higher ed realm uh, in the United States, who does this get assigned to? How do you know how to pick the right person in the organization? Is this already something that they should know that they should be a part of, or is this something that needs to be kind of structured for each um, university? 
I'd be happy to take that one first. Yeah, please okay. take that one first. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, um, I would say for the most part, this falls on information security teams uh, that I've seen. Um, but however, I will say some schools have uh, assigned, as I mentioned earlier, like a chief privacy officer role, role rather within the organization. Um, that could be someone from the general counsel's office, a lawyer uh, in the organization. Um, I know the the uh, GDPR program has the data protection officer, which has to be you know of a very high level in the organization, has to report to the highest level of the organization, and acts as really liaison between the organization and the GDPR should there be any issues, challenges, and that individual is responsible for auditing the program as well. Um, the data privacy officer role is slightly different. That's really more the operational side of it. And I've seen that fulfilled by many different roles within an organization. Oftentimes, the CIO will take that on in some of the smaller schools. Some of the larger schools, you have a dedicated person, uh, you know, with that title on their door. Um, most cases, it's, you know, someone is the CISO, quite frankly. Uh, but in parens, it could say, you know, chief risk officer, chief privacy officer, chief whatever officer after that. Because in many cases, we have to kind of play that role. Is that typically because an organization is too small and they don't have the the means to actually bring on a chief privacy officer? Yeah, it's, so, you know, this is uh, complying with regulation is becoming an expensive game. And yeah, I would agree 100%. I think some schools have taken that approach. Other schools have really just quite frankly recognized privacy as part of the security role. Mm-hmm. itself. It's really not separate from, it's really part of. So I could see certainly the relationship there is is key. Uh, but in our case, you know, uh, we look at privacy, security, and compliance altogether. We do have a chief compliance officer who drives that for us, which is I'm very grateful for. Another phenomenon that I think is changing the game, and, and certainly would welcome uh, Dr. Fortuna's thoughts on this, but uh, we are we are also implementing a data governance program. And I think many schools are heading in that, that direction where they have a chief data officer who could also fulfill the role as a chief privacy or data protection type role as well. Um, for us, it's a matter of identifying, classifying all of our data, identifying it, you know, and then, and then again, content-based, risk-based approach to how we treat it. So I want to go to identifying data flows. So you mentioned before that GDPR applies to personal data, which is kind of broad. Can we, can we kind of touch on for the listeners what that actually means? What kind of, uh, what, what identifies with GDPR data flows? So I, I, I'm happy to take that one, um, and perhaps this this will be a good segue to uh, also weigh in uh, into the data officer, um, you know, type, type of uh, uh, job title we um, discussed a bit earlier about. So the GDPR indeed applies to personal data, uh, and this concept is defined extremely broadly uh, in uh, the GDPR because uh, the legal definition says that it is personal data is any information that uh, relates to an identified or an identifiable uh, natural person or individual. Um, so technically, it can, it, it can be any information. So you, you, if you have a shoe size you know, number, that can be personal data as long as it relates to um, an individual that not even is identified, but that can be identified. So for example, you have this piece of information. Uh, Six and a half is the shoe size number of uh, the uh, women in this group of four people that are having a conversation now. And you you don't know that it's Gabriella because it doesn't say that the the shoe size number is Gabriella's. But it's kind of easy to identify me because this is the group of people. I'm the only woman. Uh, and at least, you know, uh, so singling out uh, someone and then related some piece of information to that person that can be singled out, that piece of information becomes personal data. So this is just to give you an idea of how broadly the regulation um, defines personal data. Now, that was one extreme example, but then you have other information such as um, a unique IP address, Uh, even uh, a dynamic IP address can become personal data if you have other pieces of information that can be uh, put together with it. And we already have um, case law from the Court of Justice of the European Union that um, certainly uh, finds this 
uh, as a true statement. Um, then you can also have uh, inferences about a, a particular individual um, that's um, personal data as well. Um, and of course, you have uh, the type of information that uh, is um, in, you immediately think it's personal data, like date of birth, you know, uh, social security number, or similar type of unique numbers um, that are assigned to a person, uh, like a photograph, uh, an image of someone that's also personal data. And then uh, the regulation also covers biometric data, all sorts of biometric data. And if that biometric data is used to uniquely identify a person, uh, then it becomes sensitive data or a special category of data, together with data related to health, religion, uh, race, um, Philosophical beliefs, that's actually uh, categorized special sensitive data under the GDPR uh, as well. So uh, as, you, as you can see, it, it really covers a lot of ground. And uh, this was one of the main challenges when the GDPR um, started to bring attention to data protection law here in the US, because here, um, the privacy laws mostly cover some well-defined pieces of information. So, for example, under HIPAA, you have uh, personal, like, protected health information, and this is clearly defined in a specific way. Um, you usually have uh, some sort of PII, personally identifiable information type of category of data that's protected under U.S. privacy law, and that usually is defined in a way um, which links your PII to a specific identity and you know you have very clear criteria uh, to follow. Um, so this was a huge challenge um, in between 2016 and 2018 when the GDPR entered into force and 2016 after it was adopted. Within that two years period of time uh, when uh, entities um, had to prepare for becoming compliant, a huge challenge was to actually identify what data is personal, you know, uh, from, from what they had because, and, and for good reason, you know, data here was, PII here, you know, personally identifiable information here was defined in a different way than the very broad way the GDPR uh, defines it in. So one of the challenges is a lot of that data was c collected for a purpose to begin with. And GDPR certainly talks a lot about purpose. Now, in, in your report, this uh, this guide for higher education in universities, you, you lay out these 10 practical steps to begin a GDPR compliance program. And one of those in particular is establishing a retention schedule for personal data that is subject to GDPR. So th this question is kind of for both you, yourself, Gabrielle, and, and especially you, Bob, which is, I understand the necessity to have such a retention schedule in place. From a cybersecurity standpoint, you know, we, we've had data retention schedules in place for quite some time now. But how has the the application of GDPR to higher education institutions um, forced you to update, force might be the wrong word, but, but how has it affected how you've updated those retention schedules? Um, or maybe they haven't been that, that much affected at all. Well, from, from our perspective, the retention schedule itself has not been impacted a whole lot. We had a pretty conservative approach to retention, so it wasn't a huge stretch for us. Now, now to Gabriella's point, she mentions the, the indicators that uh, GDPR identifies as personal that include things like IP address and MAC address and all kinds of really interesting notes that begin to pull in things like network logs you know, that was never considered personally identifiable information before. So I think in many ways, schools are still struggling with how to treat this data, um, how to interact with this data, uh, especially those what I'll call fringe personally identifiable information indicators. You know, you look at HIPAA, very clearly there's 18 indicators in HIPAA that are very clear that they're healthcare oriented, right? But I think something we, we can't lose sight of, and that is, here in the United States, we look at data privacy very differently than they do in Europe. Uh, and here in the United States, if I self-report that data, Gabe, if I give you that data, at that point, I'm giving you rights to that data. I mean, quite frankly, um, if I'm doing that, I'm self-reporting it to you. I don't have to necessarily get a business associate agreement to tell you I broke my leg last week, right? So it's a very different approach, where in the GDPR, in their program, 
you know, in the European program, definitely, no matter how that data is arrived at, at you, you have to protect that data under the GDPR rule. It doesn't belong to you necessarily. So it's a really interesting way of looking at it between the United States. And I think what GDPR has done is it's kind of flipped the bit here in the United States quite a bit. It's got us really thinking more conscientiously about how we interact with the data that we use, how we, you know, organizations might want to use that data for marketing. It might not be appropriate to use that data for marketing. It might not even be legal according to GDPR. So I think beyond just retention, I think we've really begun to look at our programs, the technologies we use, especially those technologies that tell us a lot about what's happening with the user from a security perspective. We have to be very careful about how we implement these tools, who has access to them, how we treat that data. I think GDPR has really introduced that to us more so than any other privacy law to date. Um, Gabrielle, anything to add on that topic? Um, no, not really. And, and that was uh, very, very useful for me to hear, uh, Bob, actually. So thank you for, for um, specifying that. Um, I would indeed, if I were to add something, um, just uh, to add that um, data retention um, is indeed linked to the uh, purpose of why you're collecting the data. Um, so, you know, at the beginning, when I was talking to uh, people that had to put in place retention schedules, that was, it was very difficult to give, a, you know, a specific answer to the uh, question. So how long should we keep it? Because um, the GDPR says that you can keep the data as long as you need it to accomplish the purpose for why you have it. <laughs> Uh, so then this was, you know, another challenge to identify that purpose. Um, but I will, I will have to say this, that indeed those organizations that already had a solid retention schedule, um, just like Bob's uh, organization, they had much, much less uh, difficulty, um, you know, to, to sort of um, clean up the data governance uh, environment. Um, so... Um, yeah, it's um, it, it, data retention is definitely one of the um, key rules in the GDPR. Um, it's uh, one of the key principles um, under Article 5, um, and uh, it does not have a black and white answer. It really depends on the purpose for why you keep the data, and it depends also on the legal obligations you have, because you might... You know, you might have some obligations that come from some sort of audit law or... Um, all, all sorts of retention obligations uh, that come from local laws. Indeed. So switching gears a little bit, this, this question actually came in from uh, a, another listener who's in the higher education space. And this university in particular is, uh, is a state agency, Bob, much, much like yours is. Only this state agency is covered by sovereign immunity, which, uh, Bob, I don't know if yours is, and, and I'm not actually sure of the distinction between a state agency being covered by sovereign immunity versus not. So, so maybe we can articulate that to some listens also. But their question is basically, as an entity that's covered by sovereign immunity, uh, does GDPR apply? Well, oh, okay. So let me first say that I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV, Gabe. You know that. All right. So we have a very talented GC staff that could address that question much better than I can. Um, so I, I'll defer that to them if you don't mind. But I will say this. I will say this. I will say that uh, I think most colleges, ours included, you know, we're doing everything we reasonably can to implement uh, what I'll call industry standards relative to data privacy. And GDPR is a program that uh, we recognize um, really not, not so, I don't want to say not from a legal perspective. I recognize it from a security perspective as just being good orderly direction, if nothing else. Uh, healthy security practices for data, uh, ways that we should really be viewing privacy of data anyway. And that's just my own personal take on the GDPR program that when I first read it, although the ambiguity jumped out at me immediately, um, like show me in that regulation who has to be trained on an annual basis. It doesn't speak to that. It just says, you know, train people. Okay, that's good. That's helpful, right? There's a lot of interpretation there. What typically happens with regulation though, and again, typically, I'm not going to say this is the case with GDPR, is that the courts and fines and regulatory findings tend to drive the regulation. And what do I mean by that? They're normally adopted by, uh, you know, um, political and or legal groups who really have not worked in the trenches of security. So they really don't understand what data security is. Um, and so they draft these laws and these approaches that state you're going to do certain things. 
And then you get them and you begin to implement them kind of hoping you're doing the right thing. Well, then all of a sudden there's a compliance review done, right? And an organization gets fined and you read that compliance review, oh my gosh, we shouldn't have been doing it that way. We should have been doing it this way instead. And you correct your program. And what happens over time is more and more correction. And finally, you get to a point of understanding. And I think we're in that we're in that uh, growth phase with GDPR now. Where we're all still kind of learning from it, but I think we're getting a better picture of what the expectations are. And the more we see of it, I think especially, specifically universities, be they state or sovereign or not, really should be implementing these controls just as part of good, healthy direction. Um, I've heard some universities say they're not going to implement them, and they cite sovereign as, a, as an excuse. Others say they're not going to do it because it's not applicable. I'm not in the European Union, so it's not applicable to me, to which I ask them, do you recruit from the European Union? Because if you do, it might be. So I think we just it, what this law has forced us to do is take a more critical look at our programs, not from a purely you know, institutional perspective of protecting our data in intellectual property, which is important to us. Um, but also looking at it from the individual's perspective as well and what that data means to them as a person and that they are entrusting us with this data. And these are probably really good practices for all of us to implement, whether it be it be it Sperian or or, <laughs> or my university or others, right? So yes, I would I would answer that with with really the, the simple statement of I think universities are doing everything they can reasonably to implement this law. Uh, and I think that the more we learn, the better we'll get. And so thank you. Gabriel, I know you are also not a lawyer. However, you've done quite a bit of, of study on this. <laughs> um, but but yes or no, sovereign immunity. I, but Bob, I think, is in the same camp that, that I certainly am and many of us are, which is if, if you're collecting that information, I don't see how you could be exempt. But uh, what's your take on it? Well, I, I'm, I am technically a lawyer, but back in Europe, not here in the U.S., uh, so I cannot claim I'm a JD because I don't have a JD degree issued here, but I do have the equivalent of it uh, back in Romania and the EU. My apologies. Um, I did not know that. That's, that's great to know also. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and um, I would say that, um, you know, the extraterritorial uh, clause in the GDPR, which is art Article 3, Paragraph 2, uh, does not make any sort of distinction uh, for public agencies of other countries. Now, of course, we also have to uh, take into account general international law. Um, and, uh, for example, there's an entire debate of whether the GDPR would apply to an international organization, because we know that international organizations, the supranational uh, type of bodies, have something called privileges and immunities. Um, so they are not subject to the law of any given state. Uh, however, that's not the case uh, generally of a public agency of, another, of, of a state, right? Right. So the GDPR does not make that distinction. Um, it simply refers to controllers or processors that offer goods or services to people in the EU. Um, and we don't have any sort of case law or practice that indicates in any way, uh, shape or form that the GDPR would not be applicable to a public university that's outside of the European Union um, now, of course, I, I, I would have to look into the details of what this uh, sovereign um, specific status <laughs> is here in the it's U.S. A American way to say, not me. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so I, I would say that um, there is nothing in the European Union law or in international law that would keep uh, an individual submitting a complaint to a data protection authority uh, in the EU if they, uh, for example, cannot obtain a copy of their own application file after they mm. send the application file to uh, a state university here. Right. Now, you know, if we go to the uh, how do we enforce the GDPR to organizations in third countries generally, not necessarily state bodies, now that, that's, that's an entire other conversation. All right. Well, great, great. So I've got got another one. Then uh, I'll stop bogarting the mic here and uh, let, let let my partner Cam get in there. So Bob, yeah, come on. <laughs> as you've had to extremely quickly shift to some online learning uh, uh, 
positions and, and tools and technologies and, and just implement that into the university. And I imagine going into the next year, you're going to have some healthy mix of more students that are going to be distance learning than before. How's that affecting your privacy program? Well, you know, from a student perspective, it's not uh, it's not holistically impacting from a privacy perspective. It's and and, and again, I think you, you would find these issues at any university. Um, the bigger issue is on the administrative side of the house. It's people that were working at an office now working from home consistently, connecting to strange networks with strange machines, and coming in through you know um, uh, you know if you think in terms of the HIPAA law, you have to control access to a machine that displays uh, PHI. And so what that means is only authorized individuals can see that screen. Um, And so in an office environment, we point screens away from public areas. We put screen protectors on them. We do all kinds of fun stuff to keep that data from being viewable by an unauthorized individual. Um, Very similar to when you go to to the um, pharmacy, they make you stand back a certain distance so you can't interact with, supposedly you're not supposed to be able to hear them, but you certainly can, but you get the idea. Um, so that becomes a challenge in the home environment. Is that machine that that individual is interacting with PHI, is it sitting down on a living room table in front of the family, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think for us and for most universities, it's really just a, a good hard look at good security practices. And we did a, a tremendous job of putting in place keep on working website. We had a keep on working, a kent.edu, keep on working. We had uh, keep on teaching and keep on learning, which all those spoke to some semblance of security elements that each one of those areas should consider from an admin, faculty, and student perspective. And certainly included in that were were some privacy elements that we felt were important for people to keep in mind as they work from home. Use of VPN went through the roof, as I'm sure you could imagine. Virtual private networking became the norm. Um, But also, we're very fortunate to have a great relationship with Microsoft, where we've implemented Microsoft authentication which really doesn't require our users to go through VPN necessarily. They can hit Microsoft directly and get Outlook and Teams and, and all that good stuff. And it's put behind, you know, enhanced uh, uh, authentication measures that Microsoft offers. So for us, it really wasn't a huge technical adjustment. It was a tremendous amount of work that we had to do. Uh, but I think for most schools, they've struggled with the whole work from home security piece. And we're figuring it out as we go. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, is it me? <laughs> I just saw you. I'm just kidding. Let's <laughs> let's turn the page here and get a little uh, get a little free. So I have some fun questions I want to ask you both. We'll start with Gabriella, and it'll be the same question for you, Bob, as well. So, Gabriella, what is your what is your guilty pleasure? Oh goodness, uh, I I would have to say uh, ice cream at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all have that? I've at been doing that uh, quite, quite, uh, you know, uh, quite a lot uh, <laughs> in the past months. For some reason, I wonder why. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah it's uh, well, at least it's not something worse. I mean, it could be. Yeah, worse. that's true. That's yeah. true. Bob, what about you? Uh, it's honestly grazing. You know, now that I'm at home, I can just between calls just make my way down to the kitchen and graze <laughs> my office. And uh, man, I'm telling you, I am uh, eating more than I ever have. Before. <laughs> I, was, I was kidding some of my coworkers. We sometimes wear suits at work, and I said, I don't know that I'll be able to fit into any of my. It's going to just jeans just and break stuff. a few buttons. Be good. Be good. Um, so I know that you have Bob. You have a dog, right? And then Gabriella, do you have any pets? No, I do not have any pets, unfortunately. Okay, so I'm going to have a different question for you, but this one's for you, Bob. If you could ask your pet three questions, oh, I think you went to go get them. If you if you could ask your your pet three questions, what would it be? Uh, what would it be? Um, well, uh, I wish he was here for me to show him to you, but he's a <laughs> terrier, and his name is Toby, and um, I swear he's slightly evil, and uh, he's <laughs> a great little dog, but he's got the most amazing personality, and uh, he has taught himself how to open and close our sliding door downstairs. Uh, so I would, yeah, I would probably ask him, why is it he feels that, um, that an, a literal army is standing at my door every time someone wants to, <laughs> loses his mind every single time? Uh, second question would be, why do you beg for food so much? We feed you every day. There's food in your bowl all the time. Why do you have to beg so much? And the third question would be, is why do you growl at the cats when there's really no reason to do that. Uh, you're perfectly comfortable on the bed. The cat walks in the room and he starts growling. So those would be my questions. <laughs> the last one is self-evident. The cat. Yes. Yeah. 
It's mine. <laughs> they have some kind of uh, determination to piss off dogs some way or another. Um, so this one could be both for both of you. Uh, if you could be a superhero, who would it be and why? Oh, goodness. That's, this is so funny because I actually have a cartoon over here on my wall that I received from my colleagues in Brussels, and it depicts me as superwoman flying over the ocean to bring, oh, you, you know, <laughs> the GDPR and data protection here. So it had, you know, some sort of uh, Wonder Woman, I suppose. That would be my <laughs> ideal um, superhero. Um, yeah. Awesome. Wonder Woman of GDPR. The Wonder Woman of GDPR, yes. <laughs> There's, was that Toby? Is, is that him now? That's my man right there. That's Toby. <laughs> hey, Toby. <Aww. laughs> is he, he, does he feel like he's standing at the door right now? He looks, he looks like he's ready to go. He is. He wants to get down. <laughs> uh, superhero traits, I would say, uh, no no doubt about it, uh, Iron Man. No doubt about Good it. One. I think that would be the coolest thing, man, to have that suit. And, uh, yeah, Tony no Stark, you, I mean, couldn't be any cooler than that. Yeah, I mean, especially if I could have that kind of money. Yeah, no doubt. Be that brilliant. That too. Yeah, that too. Um, so anything, um, we can wrap things up. Anything that we didn't touch on that either of you would like to mention? Um, do you like people following you on social media? Do you speak at events whenever events start happening again? Um, is there anything that you want to add, um, any kind of value thought leadership before we wrap things up? Um, I'll go very quickly and then turn it over to the good doctor to, to wrap us up here. I'll just say that um, this has been, first off, really nice uh, conversation, good podcast, really got me thinking about privacy slightly different. The whole conversation around privacy and protection was interesting to me, something I'm going to consider further. I think that as um, as an entity, the United States really needs to come to come to grips with what we're doing for privacy. Um, I know we have a number of programs, but that's part of the problem is we have a number of programs. Mm-hmm. I've heard recently numbers like 20 or 30 states have legislation either passed or going to pass soon for privacy. I've heard the United States government is considering a privacy bill for the U.S. privacy all this sounds wonderful, but boy, if we're not careful, we're going to end up with 50-some different privacy laws that we're going to have to meet here in the United States, in addition to GDPR, in addition to India, uh, Canada, China, you name it. Brazil. Brazil. Thank you very much, doctor. So yeah, so in my opinion, I think I, my my suggestion is, if I could give any parting good thought to, to the tinfoil hat-wearing security guys and girls out there, is I would definitely say, build your program for the worst case scenario. Uh, plan for the worst, hope for the best. So if GDPR is the most restrictive, if you want to use that word restrictive, protective program that we have, then build your pro- build your privacy program around that. Because I have a sense that if you can meet that, you'll meet the majority of what's out uh, and coming out soon. Um, and that'd just be my suggestion. Build it with the future in mind. Doctor? I cannot agree with you more, uh, Bob. This is, it's absolutely great. And I also think that um, a federal comprehensive privacy law here in the U.S. Uh, is needed. And it's about time we, ha- we get it here. Uh, there have been actually uh, legislative debates back in the 70s, you know, because I mentioned that uh, in Europe. But there were also a lot of debates here in the U.S. at that time. Uh, but unfortunately, they did not uh, lead towards a uh, comprehensive uh, privacy law, uh, but just to a law that's much narrower and it applies to uh, federal agencies uh, in some very limited uh, way. Um, I would say that I really like uh, the attention that uh, personal data and that privacy have right now uh, in in uh, the world. Technically, uh, as Bob was mentioning, there are many legislative uh, initiatives all over the world. India is going to have uh, a comprehensive law. Brazil adopted a law um, a couple of years ago, and it's going to become applicable soon. Uh, very similar to the GDPR. Uh, we have data protection or privacy laws um, all around the world, and I really like to see that the conversation has evolved so much, and um, including here in the U.S. We are having uh, some discussions um, that, that are really, really great to see. And as a last point, um, I would really love if, uh, as part of this conversation we're having in the U.S., 
uh, we are thinking more about this differentiation between uh, data protection and privacy. So how do we put, protect personal data to achieve fairness towards people? You know, that, that can be um, a goal in itself. Uh, and um, is that equivalent to protecting the intimate private sphere of someone? Or we can sort of think of them uh, differently and value both of them at the same time. So I would like to see uh, some of that conversation going up, going on as well. And I'm always happy to interact with people on uh, my Twitter and my LinkedIn, where I post quite frequently. And what um, is your Twitter handle? Mm-hmm. It's, that's going to be a tough one, Gabe. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, I can't even pronounce it. It's, it's Gabriela Zanfir, uh, and that's Gabriela with one L, and then Z-A-N-F-I-R. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we post those, post that in the notes as well, too. Oh, of course. Bob, how about yourself? You, you hang out on social media at all? I try to limit my social media as much as I can. So I do have a LinkedIn profile. People are welcome to connect with me there. I'm doing a number of speaking engagements throughout the year. And probably the best way to reach me if someone wants to reach me is security at Kent.edu. That's our, that's our catch-all. And people reach out to me uh, from the general public there quite a bit. But, that's, but otherwise, I would say just uh, LinkedIn is, is a great, great tool. Bob Ekman is my handle. Excellent. Well, I appreciate having you both on today. Awesome. Yeah, thank you both so much. Really, really appreciate your time. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey an all-around decent guy. Until next time.